Welcome in Memphis Grizzly fans and NBA fans all around. This is Elijah Campbell and you are listening to the Grizz and Grind podcast on the Hoop Heads Podcast Network. Hoopheads Nation, we appreciate you listening to this episode of Grizz and Grind with Elijah Campbell. Be sure to check out these other basketball pods on the Hoopheads Podcast Network, including Thrive with Trevor Huffman, Beyond the Ball, the CoachMaze.com Podcast, Players Court, Bleachers and Boards, and our other two team-focused NBA pods, Cavalier Central and Nuck If You Buck. Oh, and don't forget to check out our flagship, the Hoopheads Podcast, hosted by me, Mike Cleansing and my co-host Jason Sunkel, featuring some of the best minds in the game, from grassroots to the NBA. Welcome in to episode one of the Grizz and Grind podcast on the Hoop Heads Podcast Network. Thank you for joining in to our inaugural episode, where we're going to be doing the Memphis Grizzlies 2019-2020 season, year in review, part one. I am your host, Elijah Campbell, and to make show history, not only is this our first show, we have our first show guest, Kevin Hyland from MTSU, uh, Middle Tennessee State basketball manager. Um, this is what your second season? I'm going into my second season. Yep, that's right. Okay, yeah. Well, Kevin, thanks for uh, thanks for joining the show. Oh, thanks for having me on, man. I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And most importantly, you have a great basketball acumen. You work in the sport, a trusted basketball source of mine. And most importantly, you're a Grizzlies fan. Oh, yeah. Correct. That's the most important for sure. Exactly. I this appreciate is... the kind words. Absolutely. Yeah. This is a Grizzlies-oriented podcast, and this is the team we'll be covering from here on on this show. So I thought, what better way than to review it from a fan's and a basketball mind's perspective? So we'll go ahead and dive into the Memphis Grizzlies as a whole, so at, the, at the beginning of the season. Obviously, they had a really good draft. What I thought was the best complete draft, them and the Phoenix Suns probably had, uh, as well as the New Orleans Pelicans, you draft Zion Williamson, that's good enough to make you that good. And same thing for Memphis. A job Moran, what many people think is a two-person draft, they were able to get the second guy in that draft, who was the obviously the best point guard available, the uh, best point guard in the draft, and then get Brandon Clark, who I thought was the most underappreciated player going into that draft. Outside of Zion, he was the most efficient player in college basketball by a mile anytime you host a, a per of 37 in your one you know year at gonzaga you're pretty damn good and he was flew under the radar grizzlies got that pick from the mike conley trade mm-hmm. i believe yep. and were able to snag him so they have a good draft class a decent group i would say a decent group of veterans i mean you, you dylan brooks is your longest tenured player you don't know what you're going to get out of him for this full season with an, uh, a heightened role. Uh, this is your first full season with Jonas Valanciunas. No Mark Gasol, no Mike Conley. You're completely moved on into a new direction, and they have blown it up. The Memphis Grizzlies at this point have officially blown it up. So from a fan's perspective, and using your, your honest opinion, we talked about it a little bit before we got on here, but what was your honest expectation of the Memphis Grizzlies going into the season? Well, so to start... Um 
in the long term, I was I was very confident going from you know in April when they hired Kleiman to take over as I can't remember if he's the GM or the president or he might be mm-hmm. both you know, but they completely you know redid the whole front office. They got you know Chris Wallace out, who I personally was not a huge fan of. Not a lot of Grizzlies fans yeah, are. I feel um, like that's public enemy number one yeah, for Memphis yeah, Grizzlies fans so, for you know, the past half decade. I think the front office decade. gets blamed a little too much sometimes in the in the sport, but I'm not you know I'm not a huge Wallace guy. Um, you know, and then we, we were going and looking for new coaching staff and uh, went and found a guy from the Popovich tree coached. I think mm-hmm. he started with a video coordinator with the Spurs and then he worked with Budenholzer as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Taylor Jenkins, who I think is the youngest coach in the league, you know, so it, it felt like they were taking a pretty, pretty big risk on him. I didn't really, you know, know too much about him. He's turned out to be great. I think, you know, mm-hmm. he's surpassed any of my expectations. But, you know, going into the season, you know, like I said, long term, I was pretty confident, but. Um, you know, I just didn't think we had, we had completely, like you said, blown up the entire core. We didn't have mm-hmm. anybody that, you know, we didn't have any remainders from the grit and grind team, either on the roster or the staff or in the front office, you know? So it was a completely new era and, you know, usually don't kick things like that off smoothly, especially when you got, you know, young guards, like you said, Dylan Brooks is the longest tenured player. And that guy is, you know, I love watching him play sometimes, yeah. you know, you know, he's going to go up there and he's, he's not scared. He's not, but he's not a... You know, like a second round pick who's been in the league for right. three years. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. He's not, you know, he's not like we gave up Mike Conley, you know, it's like uh-huh. Dylan Brooks isn't going to fill the void, you know, leadership mm-hmm. that Mike Conley has, which isn't a knock to him at all. So I, you know, I didn't expect us to be good. You know, I expected us to, I mean, I was thinking we were going to have another top eight, top five, top eight pick this year and hopefully keep keep building up but you know i mean was really pleasantly surprised with the way everything went this year i think that's that's a, a safe assumption yeah i guess yeah. most grizzlies fans would be pleasantly surprised and, and you look at you know the scope of this team we talked about there's not a lot of veteran leadership it your best players are really young players i mean jaron jackson jr is going into year two obviously an awesome rookie season and is developing into what looks like to be a really really special player but they're playing in the western conference which is just absolutely loaded and at the beginning of the season, when I was looking at all the Western Conference teams, the only teams that I could definitively say that the Grizzlies were going to be better than were the Phoenix Suns. I never really bought much stock into the Phoenix Suns. I think they're, uh, I give them the Bruno Caboclo tag, where they're a year away from being a year away. And the uh, Memphis, uh, not Memphis, Minnesota Timberwolves. I uh, just defensively, they're so bad. Mm-hmm. And there's only so much Carl Anthony Towns can do offensively to make that team any better that I, they were lost cause in the beginning. I thought the Kings would have been pretty good, so I thought the Kings would have been a little better. I thought the Spurs would have been better. So I would have guessed Memphis to be about 13th in the West, which, in a loaded Western Conference, for a team that young, would have been a reasonable expectation. And we look over to the beginning of the season, through November, or they go 5-13 and 13, uh, in November, 6-16 six and 16 through early December. They're 10 games under 500, and it's starting to look Pretty rough. Uh, this is probably the lowest in terms of record-wise, below 500. They were uh, at six and 16. What trouble did you see as a fan, or what did you notice in terms of them in this young core with a new coach, kind of getting acclimated with each other? So I thought at first it was a lot of you know you could see the talent was there for sure. Oh yeah. Um, you could see that you know especially early on regular season games in the NBA they're not quite as intense you know through like mm-hmm. the first three quarters or so I feel like. You can watch and it's a lot more like, you know, open and, you know, it feels like there's a lot like 
things aren't as physical. It's, you know, more in the open court. It's not, you know, as, like, slowed down and, like, condensed. You're not having mm-hmm. to get into all your sets and go through all your reads as much. And so I thought that they looked comfortable in those moments. And then when things slowed down, they really showed how young they were. Mm-hmm. And um, the fact that none of them had ever played a game for Taylor Jenkins before and that Taylor mm-hmm. Jenkins had never coached an NBA game before. And, you know, so I thought that the first time that I was really confident in the team was we started Owen either Owen two or Owen three and then we played Brooklyn in the forum. Mm-hmm. And John Morant had the block shot on Kyrie Irving, which is, you know, one of my favorite pictures from the whole season. And then, you know, Jay Crowder hit the game winning shot and I thought, you know, I thought we you know, it, it was gonna be a fun season at the very least. And so, but at six and sixteen I thought that we showed a lot of that, you know, immaturity and not being able to close games out and just not having as much, you know, as other teams did. We weren't great defensively. Yeah. So. And it, it took a lot of work to get into that, too. And I like how you mentioned the Brooklyn game because that was the first time that – because it wasn't only just their first win, but that was the first time that you saw exactly what Ja Morant could be offensively and defensively. You're going to take your lumps defensively throughout the season. And you saw that in the first game. They played Miami. They had a lead going up into the fourth mm-hmm. quarter. And it kind of just fell apart because when you're that young, you have a hard time closing out games. And that's a thing that we're going to see later on in the season, too, is that they have to figure out how to properly close out games. I mean, you kind of have to lose and kind of get your uh, teeth kicked in in the fourth quarter to kind of really learn how to finish that out. <laughs> Same thing kind of happened against Chicago before, right before that Brooklyn game. And you already saw them starting to piece it together a little bit because that Nets game wasn't an easy easy game no, to win. The yep. Nets are a really overtime, good team. Yeah. Went to overtime, and John Morant was stuck on Kyrie Irving, who has broken people off in the last seconds of games of Game 7s of NBA Finals. I mean, this guy is one of the biggest, tough, best tough shot makers in crunch time in the NBA right now. And John Morant deed him up, blocked his shot, and that's when you knew that John Morant really wasn't scared of the moment either. Right. I mean, that's a, that's an intimidating situation for someone who's 20, 21 years old and is playing in their, I think that was their third, fourth game of yep. the season. Huge. I mean, it, it's a it's a real ballsy play. And and then, to, of course, to I love the set they ran in overtime where Jay Crowder hit the, the game-winning three. Mm-hmm. It was kind of Villanova. It looked just like the Villanova it's against the, North Carolina. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Love that play. And that was my favorite play in the season because, A, I just love the design of that play. B, it was executed so perfectly, so flawlessly, and John Morant was able to keep his composure be able to to break through and give Jay Crowder the ball in perfect rhythm to be able to knock down that shot. And that did uh, kind of come down as one of the highlights of the year. And that game, too, uh, was one of the most efficient John Morant games, too. John Morant, if there's any knock on his game, sometimes his scoring can't be very efficient. Uh, he's got on and off nights in that category. And defensively, he can be taken advantage of sometimes because of his smaller frame. But in that game, defensively, he kept him in it, saved the game for him. Took him to overtime and offensively had 30 points on 63% true shooting to go with his nine assists. His play creation, his shot creation is always going to be there. Mm-hmm. But some nights it is a matter of him taking over games offensively and doing it efficiently. And this is the first real glimpse I thought that we have of what could potentially be a perennial all-NBA type point guard mm-hmm. in the future. It's nice to see that that early. So they have these lumps. They're 6-16. Six and 16. And now we get to the fun part of the year. This is the part that really changes everyone's mind. If you'd have told me at the beginning of the year that the Grizzlies would go six and sixteen to start the season, I'm not looking at you like you're speaking Mandarin. Like that, I mean that that's a fair expectation for this team in a very tough conference. But then they go out of their way to win 15 of 19 games. 
from January 4th, which is a win at the Clippers, and then a win against the Blazers at home on February 12th. And in that win, or in that uh, hot streak, they had wins over the Clippers on the road, Rockets and Nuggets at home, at the Mavericks, and then the Blazers at home. Those are playoff teams, and those were games that they're hanging up 121 or you know more points on some really good teams. They scored a buck 40 against the Clippers to kick off that streak. When you watch some of those games, and this is, of course, the stretch that got them pretty much into the eight seed, got them over 500 mm-hmm. into the eight seed, where they battled for that for the rest of the season, the la- for the last month or so. What did you see that clicked and made you think, man, this team isn't just a bunch of talented young, you know, young individuals, but they're starting to pull it together as a team. So there was there were a lot of things that you saw. Not only you know it didn't streaks like this don't always you know begin where they begin, if that makes sense. Yeah. So like yeah. the first of the fifteen of nineteen wasn't really you know you could kind of mm-hmm. see them kind of figuring it out. And I think part of it was them getting a lot more comfortable in the actions that Jenkins was having them run. You know, they Mm -hmm. run a lot of single away and a lot of dribble handoffs and things like that. Um, And they were getting more comfortable in those actions for sure. I thought John Morant was getting a lot more comfortable hunting for himself Mm -hmm. more than, you know, I thought early in the season he would come out and be pass first to a fault. You know, like he thought that his, you know, priority was to create opportunities exclusively for other people mm-hmm. and um you know he kind of learned early on that you know you can't really play that way against nba defenses you know because if you mm-hmm. if you gotta keep them guessing and so i thought that he became more comfortable hunting for himself which you know kind of made everything else open up a little bit more for him um you know when you were looking at um statistics for that stretch you know i pulled some of them up and they were given up for the season. The Grizzlies gave up 112 a game, and in the stretch they were given up 110. So they were given up, you know, a full basket less, which is a big deal in a 19 mm-hmm. game stretch. Um, they were scoring 116 instead of they were usually scoring, I think, like 111. Mm-hmm. And so that came from if you go and look at the stretch, John Morant more or less put up his season averages in that stretch, and Valanciunas did as well. Um, Tyus Jones shot really well. He wasn't shooting a ton. He's not a huge volume shooter, you know, because he's playing rotation minutes behind John Morant. And then once we got DeAnthony Melton, DeAnthony Melton was getting in there too some. But um, in his opportunities, he was shooting really well. And Dylan Brooks shot really well. Dylan Brooks shot 42% from three on six attempts per game in that 19-game stretch. That's incredible. Which is um, like Kyle Korver – Clay Thompson, yeah. Pedro Storyakovich type numbers, you know, I mean, that's mm-hmm. like, so I think that what really clicked was, um, you know, guys were settling into roles. Like I said, they get more comfortable in actions. I thought Dylan Brooks was, looked a lot more comfortable coming seamlessly off these, you know, like Chicago actions and these handoffs and these mm-hmm. away screens um, that they had not really run the year before. And I'm sure he hadn't seen, you know, at, at Oregon or anything. Exactly. Yeah. And so I thought he settled into that um, and it made things easier for the rest of the team. You know, they were more efficient. Um, you know, scoring the ball more means that the other team's pulling the ball out of the net more, which means they're, you know, you're guarding in the half court more as opposed to, you know, guarding teams coming downhill, which, you know, makes things a lot easier for you. Um, and, you know, to the same end, if you're guarding in the half court, they're missing more, which means you're getting out more. So, you know, it re- that's really what it comes down to sometimes. Um, and so I thought their chemistry was kind of coming into. I thought, you know, guys who 
I just Brandon Clark and John Moran, I thought were getting into really good mm-hmm. shape for the first time. Um, and you know, as far as like going forward, I think what that looks like is if Dylan Brooks can, he don't even need to shoot forty two percent on six attempts, but if he can oh, no, shoot, that's a bonus, right? Really? If he can shoot anywhere from thirty eight to forty on six attempts a game for the next few years, I mean, they'll have. That's going to be a really hard team to guard. He could really carve out a yeah. very important role that this Grizzlies team honestly needs. Because I thought know, he was the X factor this season. Honestly, I thought you more yeah, or less you, you kind of knew what you were trying to, you were going to get from John Morant um, and Jaron. I thought Jaron was a little timid sometimes, uh, mm-hmm. and he fouled a lot. Obviously, you know he still does that. He's just a kid, but yeah. And then you got uh, Jonas. I thought Jonas was really steady. Um, a lot of consistency on the team, and really, in yeah. terms of like efficiency, all all these guys that you know you mentioned are sixteen and above per players. Meaning, the positives they're bringing are pretty consistent. And for listeners who may not be, I guess, familiar with per, it's player efficiency rating, and it's pretty much the scale is in the NBA. If you have over a fourteen and a half p fourteen and a half per is about average, but it takes everything that you do well onto a court, everything that you do, whether it be points rebounds, assists, steals, blocks, turnovers, anything that you can quantify on a basketball court pretty much put to per 100 possessions or 100 possession scale and compares you with the rest of your league. So it so it kind of gives you that context of how everybody else is. So Jaron Jackson out of all those guys out of Jonas Valančiūnas, Brandon Clark, Ja Morant, um, even Tyus Jones are all 16 and above, you know, PER guys. Dylan Brooks is at an 11. So it tells you what he does really well. He, I mean, he can do well in spurts, but over the course of 100 possessions, he's still very erratic. Mm-hmm. And that is when you mentioned you know, him being the X factor. Really, is there's it's 100% true. Because in the, like, I, I like how you mentioned his shooting, too, because a lot of his value comes from his three-point shooting. Because those are the shots he's going to get easily. John Morant is excellent at being able to provide other guys with three-point shots. John Morant's really good at finishing around the rim. He's got an awesome floater package, awesome layup package, and the guy just floats. He gets into the gets into the lane, and he is in the air for so long that he's able to make decisions pretty much on a whim, whether it be to go and shoot the layup, notice he's drawing another center and dot, jump it off to, to Jaron Jackson or JV, or find shooters on the outside. And that's what makes John Morant so good. So those shots are always there for Dylan Brooks. And when he was shooting 42%, they're winning a lot of games. Mm-hmm. That was one of the Putting things I noticed, too. Points. A whole lot of points. Because yeah. it makes everything else is so much harder to guard. You know, when you're having to worry yeah. about a guy putting up six a game and shooting 42%, I mean, that's... I've, you, you can't help off right. of them. Yeah. So you're only opening up the floor for John Morant more. And, and there's no... I'm not willing to say there's not four point guard, four or five point guards better than John Morant in the open floor. That is where he succeeds. There's a reason the Grizzlies were sixth in pace all year. And there's a reason when John Morant was at Murray State, his last year there, they scored four times more in transition than the next highest team in college basketball per synergy. That's his strength. That's just what he does better mm-hmm. than almost any other point guard in basketball. And the, the Grizzlies really played to that strength. And some things I noticed, too, as a team, they shot 37% in that stretch from three. During the regular season as a total, they were barely over 34%. So they bumped that up as a team, you know, three whole percentage points, which is huge. They cut down on the turnovers, which cost them a lot in a lot of their early games. John Morant cut down on his turnovers. And I'll go ahead and say this. When you take turnovers and John Morant into consideration, John Morant's naturally going to have a lot more turnovers, raw turnovers than a lot of other players because A, his usage is pretty high. And B, he is a high risk, high reward type of passer. 
it just so happens with his passing ability, more often than not, those passes are going to be connected. It kind of reminds me of Philip Rivers in football. If anyone's an NFL fan is listening, Philip Rivers throws a lot of interceptions to Brett Favre. They throw, they'll throw some picks, and you can't look at their interception total at the end of the season to make a sole basis, uh, I guess, um, observation on that player because of that number because they throw for more touchdowns. In this case, John Rant's connecting on more assists because he's making very high-level difficulty passes, and he's connecting on a lot of those. But during the stretch, those turnovers were as low as they were all season. The lowest turnover per game average in a month that John Morant had this entire season was in that much month span in early January to mid-February. So that helped out a lot, too. Uh, in one game specifically, it was against the Spurs at home. Big win because they competed with the Spurs that eighth spot all season long. 39 to 8 assist to turnover ratio, and five players recorded at least four assists. So, not only are guys hitting the easy shots, they're having shot creation come from everyone. DeAnthony Melton was creating shots. Tyus Jones was creating shots. Like you mentioned, his role kind of got bi- got a lot bigger, and we'll, we'll talk about in the bubble how they struggled without him. And it made life on DeAnthony Melton a whole lot harder when he didn't have Tyus Jones on the floor as well. And even Brandon Clark, I think, had about four assists in that game as well. So five players, at least four assists is a ton. And the bench is another thing. Specifically, Brandon Clark and DeAnthony Melton. They had a couple games in that run. Um, for example, against the Warriors, Brandon Clark had 14-7 on 78% true shooting. DeAnthony Melton posted 12-6-4 in that win. And against the Rockets, he had a similar game uh, in their win at home. And then against the Mavs, uh, this win was on the road. Brandon Clark, 18-6-3. And then Tyus Jones had 19 points on a perfect shooting night. I think it was 8 for 8 from the field, 3 for 3 from 3. And then DeAnthony Melton uh, flirted with a Draymond Green triple-double of 10, 9, and 5. That is huge if you're able to get depth like that. And that was one of the concerns with the Grizzlies coming into the season was with their inexperience and youth also comes depth issues because a lot of their bench players aren't very experienced. I mean, their highest paid bench player, their highest paid player on the team anyway, a fun fact, this team is Gorgie Jang. He's one of the, is, is one of the sweet guys that's on this team is supposed to be an experienced vet, and he's only played in the league for like real meaningful minutes in the league for a handful of years. Mm-hmm. And he came halfway through the season from Minnesota mm-hmm. and uh, Justice Winslow, the three-team trade, didn't he? Yep, and he came and he was on the tail end of this run. But earlier in this run, uh, about I think, I can't remember the exact number of games, Jay Crowder was also on the team. Well, Jay Crowder in that first win in Los Angeles put up 27 points and hit about six or seven threes. Jay Crowder getting traded away short-term really, really hurt this team, especially when it came later in the season, and we'll get to that too. But um, that like, that to me stood out because whenever there was, there were some games where guys weren't hitting shots and the effective field goal shooting was in the 50s to 52%. You're fighting for efficient buckets. You're just fighting to get a bucket. And then if you're not scoring, you got to keep the other team from scoring. And Jay Crowder's role on that team defensively was incredibly important. And that was a big reason for them going 15 out of 19. Mm-hmm. I think you can see, you know, a lot of Jay Crowder's importance shows up even more than in the stat sheet. You know, he grew on me mm-hmm. a lot. I didn't really, you know, have an opinion on him one way or another when he came in. But he's, he's really grown to be one of the guys I really like to cheer for. I'm really happy to see him doing well. In Miami, because you can really tell by the way that guys on the team reacted to him getting traded, mm-hmm. how important he was to the to the locker room, you know, and to 
like you were talking about consistency from the vets. You know, he was one of them. It was it was him and Jonas uh, Valanciunas. You could tell coming into every game, you could pretty much know what you were getting from those guys. You could know where they were at. You could know what they were going to give you on both ends of the floor. So I thought that when we traded him, uh, you know, like you said, short term, it kind of hurt, especially because Justice Winslow's, you know, I think he played eight games this season. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was already hurt, and then he came and was hurt and played a couple games and then missed the whole bubble. And in the long term, it might end up, you know, I mean, it could end up being a franchise-changing move, I think. I think Justice Winslow has a lot of potential, a lot. If he can stay healthy, mm-hmm. if he can shoot the ball better, you know, he can he can play make. He's real smart. He defends really well. Got good size. You know, he's versatile. And, you know, I think that one of the big things about him is you need to have a guy like that in the Southwest division mm-hmm. because you're guarding, you know, who's guarding Luka Doncic four times a season. That's tough. Who's guarding James Harden yeah. four times a season. To a lesser extent, you know, who's guarding DeMar DeRozan, who's still, you know, I mean, he's a really, really good player mm-hmm. at the same position. You know, who's going to guard those three guys? And so I think getting somebody, you know, long-term that could, you know, kind of be up to that challenge, hopefully if he stays healthy, is, you know, kind of a big deal. Oh, for sure. And I'm, I'm on the fence on that trade because – I think one of the biggest offensive Achilles heels for this Memphis Grizzlies team is three-point shooting. And Jay Crowder really, when he was getting going, I mean, he added an element to this team that they just needed. Mm-hmm. And thankfully for the Grizzlies, Grayson Allen kind of filled that three-point shooting role a little bit coming off the bench when we start going you know, into the bubble games. And there were some games during this run where Grayson Allen would hit a couple threes too. His three-point shooting got a whole lot better as the season went on. But I really, really love Jay Crowder, Solomon Hill, whatever. Um, I've just never been a big Solomon Hill guy by any stretch of the imagination. But I thought losing Jay Crowder hurt when it came to bubble games because there were times in, you know, against the Trailblazers, uh, against San Antonio, like you said, which it would have been nice to have Justice Winslow for crunch time defensively Mm -hmm. there too. It would have just been different because Jay Crowder at least is a solid defender veteran presence and adds that three-point right. shooting that this is something that's just missing and it's just mm-hmm. missing right now because john moran's three-point shot is going to take some time to develop uh, it's really streaky and percentage-wise not very not great dylan brooks solid three-point shooter but very inconsistent his, his play basically is, is right really he's very erratic mm-hmm. and john Morant is you know like you said streaky i feel like he's he's still kind of learning how to ride the mm-hmm. highs and lows you know of playing 82 games and yeah. shooting multiple times a game and like yeah he's never had to one shoot a game lot of doesn't threes. have to carry over you know right yeah, yeah no at murray state he wasn't having to shoot a lot of threes mm-hmm. um and then yeah so i mean but when it comes to to the trade to me what it comes down to is like in the now you know how it affected mm-hmm. the 2019 2020 season it wasn't a favorable trade if you're if you're uh-huh. just talking about this season because yeah. you're trading away a guy that, you know, was playing big minutes. He had a huge role on and off the court for the team, you know. Because yeah, chemistry, chemistry and culture is a huge deal. Is a mm-hmm. huge deal. And, you know, the way that they talk about him, you know, is like he really was that. You know, he was he was a huge part mm-hmm. of that. And so you're giving him up. So it's it's really a like now versus like potentially later kind of deal, you know. Exactly. Because yeah. like Miami was trying to make the deal because they want Jay Crowder for now. You see, he's playing a big role for them against you know Indiana. Playing the same role. He's gonna do the, he's <laughs> gonna keep, same he's role. Gonna keep doing the same thing. Um, and you know we got Justice Winslow who hopefully will pan out in the long term. But we you know at least I never expected Justice Winslow to come in and 
end up getting healthy and make the team better than we were before the mm-hmm. trade. And know? that's another thing about the the tag on Justice Winslow too is like there's a lot of pauses about Justice Winslow's game. I don't want to come in here and verbally dump all over yeah. Justice Winslow or the trade in particular because it's still too early to tell. Even though I agree with you that it is that it was a little detrimental to their chances of winning in the bubble because of that lack of veteran leadership and defensive presence and three point shooting, but. They're, the positive of Justice Winslow's game is he became a better ball handler and distributor the more he played in Miami. And Spolster played him a lot, kind of in like a backup point guard kind of role. He brought The more he played in Miami, the more he started seeing him bring the ball up the floor. And he became something that when Tyus Jones was hurt would have been awesome to mm-hmm. have for this Memphis Grizzlies team because D'Anthony Melton struggled whenever – John Brandt had to sit out and he had to kind of take the reins of the offense. You saw him really, really struggle in that role. And having a secondary uh, ball handler and distributor on the floor would have helped him out immensely. But mm-hmm. the only thing is, too, is the injuries. I mean, I, I can't say definitively. I need to go back and look. But I don't know if Justice Winslow has played a full season uh, at any point in his career in the NBA. I know this year, I'm pretty sure he had a hip injury, mm-hmm. and then he came back and played a little bit. And then I think during the bubble, he re- or during the um, hiatus, excuse me, during the mm-hmm. quarantine and the suspension of the season, he re-injured it working out or something. Yeah, okay. So his uh, game total, 78 games his rookie year, 18 games in 16-17, 68 games in 17-18, 66 games in 18-19, and then 11 games right. this season. So injuries have, have really, really hurt his uh, his career trajectory. But, I mean, you you see it, there's a lot there. And uh, in terms of assist, he got so much better distributing the ball. Um, this year, not as much. But last year, he was averaging seven assists per 100 possessions. They were finally getting to let him take the reins of the offense from a position that he never really had to do. He didn't have to do that at Duke. That was Tyus Jones's job, which mm-hmm. ironically enough, you have half that recruiting class, right. almost the entire recruiting class minus Jalil Okafor yeah, Jalil. on this team. Yeah, then you got the whole <laughs> you got the whole completion of the of the uh, 2015 national champion Duke Blue Devils, but which is another which is my like underrated storyline. I loved that college basketball team. It's one of my favorite college. Oh, I loved. Teams. I loved. Justice was actually my favorite one to watch. Yeah, I loved, loved him. Well, you loved watching Jalil Okafor in the post was just. I mean, there's you know. Mm-hmm. There's nothing quite like watching a guy just work in the post for 30 points a with, night, you know. Yeah, with great technical footwork, right. yeah, and but, skill, but you and could touch always the you, at the next level. You could always tell, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't think he was. He couldn't have been the same guy, you know. Yeah. But um, especially defensively, and Tyus, and Tyus Jones is a great, and I think Tyus, mm-hmm. Tyus Jones is a solid player now in the NBA. But I thought yeah. Justice Winslow had the most upside out of those three guys, and I still think he does. But like you said, oh, he's yeah. got to stay healthy and he's got to shoot the ball better for sure. Yeah, his, his defensive versata- uh, versatility is. Is, is incredible yeah. and that was his role at Duke was to be a 3 and D guy I mean he was never asked to be the point guard be the ball handler and then the further along he got in Miami the more Eric Spolster was actually able to trust him yeah Spolster is a genius pos- he is yeah he gets, he gets the most out of everybody that plays there it's 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 really crazy to and, watch and it's going to benefit him uh, getting mm-hmm. to play in that role too and we'll wrap up this this first part Um, talking about, I'll go ahead and run through the numbers of the regular season for the Grizzlies. Then we'll go into the bubble, which is like a really weird regular season in its own. Oh, another thing I forgot to mention in that, uh, winning streak or not winning streaks. It wasn't a consecutive streak, but when they went 15 of 19, really took control of their season and their destiny. Jaron Jackson Jr. Shot 42.6% from three and was 62% true shooting during that stretch. That's when you're seeing 
the what everybody else can see out of Jaron Jackson Jr. when he's not fouling, you know, over six times per 100 possessions, when he's able to keep himself on the floor and remain mentally engaged, he does kind of look like a Kevin Garnett that can ex- expand his range. And he's shoot unbelievable. Threes. I mean, so so Kevin Garnett's like his prime prime was uh-huh. when I was like. I mean, I was born in 98, so I didn't really get to see it as much. You know, I right. got to watch the Celtics teams, but even then, you know, I was kind of less aware of what I was really watching, you know? Yeah, he wasn't he wasn't the big ticket right. in Boston. But um, Jaron Jackson, I've, you know, in the years that I've been closely following and watching guys, I mean, I've never seen anybody like him. He's like, he's really confusing to watch sometimes, the way he can handle the ball. He's you a know, unicorn he in his own right, too. Yeah, and he's, you know, he's got that funky-looking jump shot, but he can shoot it really well from distance. Yeah. He hit that one against, uh, was it Portland in the bubble? Or San Antonio, was it the San Antonio one where he hits it from the and corner? From the corner, yeah, it was. Yeah, San Antonio, because then Dylan Brooks fouled DeMar DeRozan on a pump fake at the other end. Next episode, we're going to dive into that one. Yeah. I, I have a lot of thoughts about that one. So I'll let you go before I get on about Dylan Brooks. Yeah. <laughs> Man, that was a tough one. But yeah, Jaron Jackson shot. I mean, what, what you see, what we what we know Jaron Jackson Jr. can be is what you saw in that stretch. And I think he's still like one of the most underrated stars because when you talk, talk about young stars in the NBA, I mean, Jaron Jackson Jr. is not the first thing that comes up. He's not the first thing that comes up on his own team. But I think that's going to change once he eventually does start doing it at a more consistent level. I think you're really going to start seeing more. Yeah, um, I think I think it's equal out. parts fouling too much and playing in Memphis. Yeah, the yeah the the exposure of, yeah. of Memphis is a, and now playing in Memphis with John Morant. Mm-hmm. So they'll be getting some attention. Uh, so before we go uh, head on out here, we'll go ahead and break down what what kind of team were these Grizzlies when you look at the numbers. So here's what we learned: they are still an average to below average offensive team, despite their young talent and as fun as they are to watch. They finished twentieth. In offensive rating this year, they were seventh in the league in two-point percentage. They got the ball in the paint. They were not missing. And Brandon Clark's a big underrated reason for that. One of the best floating floater packages in basketball. A very underrated part of his game. But they're 23rd in three-point percentage and struggled to get to the line. They're 19th in free-throw attempt rate. So they're very pedestrian in that in that part of uh, their offense. But the biggest jump that they made from last year to this year was assist. They increased their assists per game totals by 12%. And that put them, I believe, 7th in the entire league um, in assists. Uh, they were sharing the ball really well. And they finished second, my bad, second in assists per game on the season. And that was, a, like I said, a 12-point jump from last season. But what also made that number from the offensive rating go 20th. So you might be asking, like, how the hell could a team that is second in assists in the NBA also have the 20th ranked offensive rating? Well, they were 23rd in turnovers. They turned the ball over a lot. And I will go ahead and say that a lot of their better passers and distributors are high-risk, high-reward passers. Well, I talked about John Morant being that. Tyus Jones, in a way, is that way, too. But he's a, he's a really good passer. Uh, a lot of their a lot of their players are like that, and some of that's also experience. Dylan Brooks could turn the ball over a lot whenever his play became a little more erratic. Uh, Jonas Valanciunas, but actually would have some games where he turned the ball over quite frequently, and even DeAnthony Melton too, because he as good as he as well as he played during some stretches, it was really really hard for him, I guess, to take the reins as like the backup point guard when Tyus Jones wasn't available. So I'll go ahead and ask you, Kevin, while we're on the the topic of the numbers, the number side on the offensive end of the floor, what about that of any of those stood out to you? I thought the assists, um, you know, so the turnovers, you 
kind of knew the turnovers were going to come. Young team. Opinion. You yeah. kind of, anytime you turn the TV on, you had to come to terms with the fact that you were going to see a lot of turnovers. Um, I thought that the assists, because the assists weren't all coming off, you know, a guy like, I mean, you know, so like you watch Houston, you know, like yeah. James Harden will have 16 assists and as a team, they won't break like 30, you know, mm-hmm. he'll have like two thirds of the assists. So what, the Grizzlies were doing it wasn't that. I mean, John Morant was averaging a lot of assists, but a lot of their actions just involve, you know, all five guys are a threat, you know, mm-hmm. at, at all times. And, you know, a lot of these actions that they run, you know, guys, you know, are in positions to slip out of screens and space out of screens. And guys are taught, you know, to read coming off the screens well, off ball and on ball. They run the DHOs well. And most importantly, I think, is they run a lot of – they have a lot of reversals within their mm-hmm. action, just within, you know, what they happen to be running. You know, a lot of the time it'll start with the ball in the middle of the floor, so they'll get into some delay stuff if you're familiar with any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with countless actions on the wings, I'm a huge delay guy. Or, you know, they ran some motion strong stuff, which is, you know, straight from Pop and Budenholzer. And both of those, you know, involve the ball going, you know, reversing sides of the floor and then all five guys being involved in the action in one mm-hmm. way or another. So, you know, my main point is the assists really excite me because they're incredibly sustainable. Oh, yeah. You know, there's no reason that they can't come out and be doing that every year and even to, you know, mm-hmm. more and more the less they turn the ball over, you know. Right. And you've got a guy, in addition to running that kind of offense, you've got a guy who late shot clock can create and pass like John Morant who, like you said, I think if you get him space going to the rim, I mean – I will live with the outcome of whatever that is 10 times out of 10. I don't care if he turns mm-hmm. it over a couple times, you know. If he's getting downhill and making plays, you know, I'm, I'm happy to see that. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very sustainable offense. And most of, most of the things that I saw, like team-wise, that, you know, weren't great are really fixable and kind of just like growing pain stuff, I thought. Exactly. And I like how you mentioned the assist because it does kind of speak to the egalitarian ways of the the Popovich and Budenholzer system. They all come from the same coaching tree, and a lot of that is predicated on maybe not one guy getting 16 assists in a game like Steve Nash could, but having everyone be able to pass the ball. Right. That way, when you are in situations where another team is playing really good defense and you're forced to take shots late in the shot clock, they're able to still get good looks. Statistically speaking, the worst shots in terms of position of the shot clock are within the last five seconds. You're never getting a good look in the last five seconds. But the Grizzlies were able to manufacture some because, every because like you said, the reversals are really good. Everybody is a threat to be able to pass the ball. Even Jonas Valanciunas, who is your least expected guy to be racking up assists, right. is a really good passer out mm-hmm. of the post. And if you have guys that can knock down shots on the outside or even right. be a threat to slash, maybe like a... Uh, John Moran off the ball, Dylan Brooks off ball, Brandon Clark even off the ball, move really, really well when Mm -hmm. guys are in trouble. You're able to get really good looks regardless of what time is on the shot clock. That uh, was one of those things for me that was really big. And one thing that I think that is a growing pain thing that is if if this keeps on for the next couple of years, they might not reach full potential. That's free throw rate. I think sometimes they they need to learn how to be able to draw calls. That's part part of the game. Mm -hmm. I mean, you got to... And that's part of learning, too. I mean, a lot of these guys, like we said, we'll say it a thousand times. They're young. There's a lot of potential. But you got to be able to catch on to how the league is officiated. And you got to be able to do the things that are going to get you to the line. On days that you're not shooting really well, mm-hmm. you're going to be able to have to create your own offense when the clock is stopped by getting to the free throw line, seeing a couple fall in, and really start to kickstart your offense that way. 
but when there are 19 other teams better than you at getting to the line, you're going to lose the free throw battle more often than not, and that is a really big thing, especially when it comes to playoff-type games. They haven't played any playoff games yet, but when it comes to playoff-type games, that can bite you in the rear, and we'll get into that when we go into the bubble. Defensively, I thought they were more of underrated defensive teams. They were only 15th in defensive rating, but if you had, if someone held a gun to your head and made you guess what they were in defensive rating, you probably wouldn't have guessed more than 17 or 18, I feel like. But they, they finished middle of the pack of the league. They held opponents to 50% two-point shooting, which ranked 6th in the entire league. And they were an above-average team in terms of forcing turnovers. They were 14th, but it was rarely enough to win the turnover battle consistently because on the offensive side of the ball, they were still turning the ball over a little too much. Um, we mentioned how they were, I guess, in the lower end of the league in that category, but they're on the higher end, so like barely past you know the 50th percentile in terms of forcing turnovers, which has to be a, a positive sign for uh, for Grizzlies fans. And of course, like I mentioned earlier, when it came to pace and tempo, they were six in the league in pace in terms of possessions played per game. Defensively, what about those numbers? stood out to you and what reflect what you think this team actually is on that side of the ball. So talking again about sustainability, could you tell me again what we were uh, opponents three-point percentage? Sixth, you said? Uh, oh, I actually go back. Uh, sixth in the league and two-point percentage. Two point, no, no, yeah. no. Uh, defensively, like what do we allow? You said that we were pretty high, I thought, in opponents three-point percentage. Uh, yeah, actually, let me go back and look. I did not jot that down, but they were a little um, higher, I believe. In that area, I got this pulled up. Opponent three-point percentage, uh, 25th. The, they held opponents to 35% shooting threes. Or 24, just kidding. 36%. Yeah, so I think that's another, you know... I thought being young, I thought we didn't guard the ball, you know, fantastically a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you're getting downhill and giving up easy looks, you know. Uh I thought that I think Dylan Brooks is really solid defensively. I think, you know, we already talked mm-hmm. about Justice Winslow. D'Anthony Melton is, you know, he's a problem, I think, for, you know, I don't think he's a guy that you want to be defended by. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Morant certainly has the attributes, you know. He's yeah, he's, he's, he's not strong yeah. enough, you know, but he's, yeah, fast. He can, you know, he's got he's quick off the ground. Yeah, he's, NBA he's weight long. training regimen is going right. to be able to get him a little stronger, a little firmer yeah. on his feet. Then you got Jaron. All Jaron has to do is not foul as much. You know, when he's on the floor, I think he's I think he's really good defensively. His lateral quickness could, could be a little better, but mm-hmm. I think his, his versatility is really good. Uh, he's already getting a, li- a little better. I'm not going to say he got on a limit saying he's gotten, you know, a whole lot better right. in terms of, you know, uh, in terms of fouling. Last year, he is averaging 7.2 fouls per 100 possessions. He got that down to 6.7 this year. You just need to get down just a little bit more. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Jaron, and then, you know, Valanchunas, he, he rebounds really well, which I think is a big part of defense, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, he walls up well. He's good in the post. Uh, Brandon Clark, I think, has a chance to be a pretty switchable guy, you know. Mm-hmm. If you, you can switch one through four, I think, with Brandon Clark, especially, you know, with the way modern defenses are or offenses are. You know, not many teams are playing two back-to-back, mm-hmm. back-to-basket post players at oh the same rare point. very rare um, the lakers are one of the only teams that lakers that luckily, luckily we were fortunate enough to get mm-hmm. one of those teams in the play-in game so that was really fun um, <laughs> yeah no, no kidding and yeah so i think that d- defensively i think they have you know a long way to go i think they have a really high ceiling mm-hmm. but defense is tricky because there's never any 
measurable way to feel like guarantee that you know a guy's going to consistently get better at defending you know yeah and i think that it's hard to tell i feel like defensively you know schemes in the nba must be you know i i played a year of college basketball i played like d3 so i wasn't very good but um, but it's a higher level of basketball it's it's like it's like in high school we never had scouts or anything so this is like my point of reference yeah we um you know it's like scouting what a team does defensively is easy because at the Mm. end of the day you're just running something that you've been working on since october Right. You know what I yeah. mean? So, like, if you're in January and you're playing, you know, you're running a ball screen continuity offense and you're playing a team that switches everything, you're still running the ball screen offense, but there's just mm-hmm. going to be a wrinkle or two, you know, here or there. Whereas, you know, every night you could be playing a completely different offense. You know, you could be mm-hmm. having to learn how to defend a completely different system every night. And, you know, in the NBA, I would I would feel like it's even more than that, you know, because even if you're running similar actions, you got to – some nights you got to go out and defend a team, you know, like Houston that's putting up 53s a game and, you know, you got James Harden scoring 36 a game efficiently. And then other games you got to go into Los Angeles and you got to guard – LeBron and Anthony Davis, and you got to guard the spread ball screen, and then you got to go play at the Sable Center again the next night and guard Kawhi mm-hmm. Leonard and Paul George when he's shooting well, and all those guys. And then, you know, didn't really have to see him this year, but, you know, go and defend Golden State. Minnesota, I think, be will be challenge. real hard to defend next year. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's just you could go on. And, you know, so each team presents a different challenge. And so I think I would, I would have to guess it would be a lot harder to prepare defensively to guard night in and night out as an NBA team than it is to prepare offensively, you know? So I think that that's another, like, inexperience probably really affected that. Exactly. And, and that'll definitely get better as they go along. It's, it's you know, sometimes being a, a good individual defender is one thing. Being a team defender is a totally other concept. And that's just going to take, you know, they're going to be able to get better as they just play a lot of these teams in the Western Conference. And it helps that you're playing the best teams in the world. Because they just so happen to all be in the West, with the exception of like two or three teams in the East, mm-hmm. and you're playing them two, uh, three to four times, you know, a season. But that'll be all for Grizz and Grind Year in Review Part One, the first ever episode of Grizz and Grind. Kevin, thank you for joining me, and I uh, hope to have you on for Part Two. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me on. It was yeah. a pleasure. Absolutely. And speaking of Part Two, bubble trouble, injuries, a bright future, and a loaded conference. We'll get that. Get into all of that when we record next. This is the Grizz and Grind podcast here on the Hoop Heads Podcast Network. Thank you for listening to the Grizz and Grind podcast here on the Hoop Heads Podcast Network. This is Elijah Campbell saying so long, and we hope to have you back again soon for more of the best Grizzlies talk east of the Mississippi. We'll see you around.